You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven and Arthur Parkinson. And this week, it's just Arthur and I on our own without any guests because we're talking about something that we're so passionate about that we're going to play ping pong about biennials and which ones we like, when to sow and grow them, how to do it, all things biennial. And also, of course, it's worth knowing that there aren't just flowering biennials, there are, of course, edible biennials too, two really key ones that we grow lots of here, which are parsley and carrots. So, Arthur, which are your favourite biennials? Well, for me, it's got to be wallflowers, mainly because they're very nostalgic. I remember being little, knowing it was autumn, because my mum would collect me and my brother from school, and she'd have walked by the flower market, which was on a Friday in our town. And at that time of year, they'd sell bare root bunches of wallflowers. So she'd be there in the playground with all the other mums with two shopping bags full of wallflowers wrapped in newspaper. And then we'd plant them together. But of course, as you know, Sarah, quite often the bare root mixed bunches contain yellow quite often. Mm. So I remember most springs, my mum would be quite annoyed because we'd have a variety. I think it's the one called Tom Fum. Mm. that would dominate uh, the the purples and the reds that my mum craved to get. Um, some years it was good, some years it was bad. But no, for me, wallflowers are the top of the biennial list. Yeah. I just um, want to reminisce as well, because I remember with wallflowers, uh, walking into the cottage garden at Sissinghurst, where the South Cottage is built from red brick. Mm. And between the stone path and around the stone steps, which have that famous photo of Vita and Harold sitting on the chair uh, with Vita sitting down and Harold standing up, I think it is. And either side of them then was this great sweep of wallflowers against the south wall there. And they're still there normally every spring. And I remember walking into the, as I say, the, the cottage garden at Sissinghurst. It must be 30, 30 odd years ago. And just that smell, that incredible sort of warm, old-fashioned, comforting, I don't know, it's really difficult to describe a wallflower smell. You can't bottle it, can you, at all? No, I've never no. smelled anything that came anywhere near it. And it's, it's, there is something really old-fashioned about it, but it's just utterly, utterly lovely. And uh, I remember really well the two varieties there was on one side on the right was the lovely deep orange with sort of paling as the flowers aged when it first opened, really deep vermilion orange. And that one, it looked like marmalade, but I think that one was called Fire King. And on the left of the steps was a really tall, very, very dark red one, uh, which was called Blood Red. And um, I've pretty much sown and grown them ever since. And I suppose it's just worth sort of recapping what a biennial is. A biennial is something that you sow one year in May or June, ideally, because that gives it enough time to get its roots down before the weather gets cold in the autumn and into the winter. And it flowers the following, normally sort of May, June. But of course, with wallflowers, it's a little bit earlier. And the other one that flowers early that I love here, that we have lots in the garden with the tulips, are the Honesties. 
And so that's Lunaria annua, yeah. which is confusing. It's called Lunaria annua, but it's actually biennial. It, it won't flower the same year if you, if you sow it like a hardy annual. But I love those too. But And, and do you have um, others, Arthur, that you like uh, for the later months, out of spring into summer? Well, foxgloves are the classic one, aren't they? And I don't think you yeah. can have too many foxgloves. The problem is I think a lot of people forget that they're biennial. And then, of course, if you want them current year, if you haven't got any, you'd end up going to the garden centre and buying these plants that are almost 10 quid each. Yeah. And if you've got a garden to fill, that, that is incredibly expensive. So I must sow foxgloves this year myself. My only annoyance with them is the seed is so small. So you have to really finely sow them into the seed tray or you can direct sow them but I do find seed tray sowing them is is better for making sure you get nice strong seedlings yeah because um, at this time of year the, the flower beds are quite full yeah no it's true no they are they're like dust aren't they and mm. um there's only one other thing that I sow regularly that is as dust-like which is the Nicotianas but what I find with foxgloves over the years a really good system to get them quite evenly and well distributed is to actually get a big tray, so almost like three times the size of a normal seed tray. And I just use these old grey sort of shallow trays, which I've put holes in the bottom. And so I fill them with a non-peat-based compost. And then I just find that if I'm sowing over this big surface area and just a small pinch of seed that's from the palm of my hand, and I sow super quickly, so it's sort of over a big surface area, a small amount, super quick, you actually get relatively good even distribution. And so then the whole process of pricking out is not so fiddly. And, you know, it just makes it all easier, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it really does. I mean, I'm always torn when it comes to spaniels because if you've got a greenhouse, it's fantastic time because you've started to really clear the greenhouse out of, of most of the stuff, plants that you've grown for your summer show. So your your greenhouse shelves are empty and it's a lovely thing to do. With a windowsill system, it's a little bit more tricky because quite often mm, at that time of year, of you're starting to go on holiday and it's much, much more hotter. So you go away for even a long weekend and quite often you come back and your windowsill greenhouse is, is baked. Yeah. So to be honest, for, for a small garden like me, I do tend to buy my biennials in the seedlings, particularly wallflowers actually, increasingly. Okay, yeah. I just find they're much stronger and they just get, I then pot them all up into a nine centimetre pot. And it's a bit easier, but you know, half and half. There's a there's a dianthus that I'm going to sow this year called Sooty, which I know is an old variety that's been reintroduced to to your range. Mm. Um, I grew it a few years ago, and it's it was absolutely beautiful. And they, what's wonderful about sweet worms in particular is they really do sort of keep the garden going as the even as the alliums are fading, and that's when quite often you think, well, what comes next? And if you've just got roses, or you know, there is a bit of a a drought of colour. Yeah. Sweet rooms really do carry it on. And like wallflowers, they're scented. Yeah. So they're a lovely, you know, yeah. wallflowers and sweet rooms, I think, are well worth having. And Sooty's the one, it's a luscious black velvet flower, and then it's got mm. that dark crimson leaf, hasn't it? And yeah. um, what I always find is there's a beautiful, beautiful mix of the new buds and growth, which is slightly greener, and then the slightly older leaves and stem, which are, the, you know, almost ebony. And so yeah. you get that lovely play of those two colours, even without the mm. flowers, they're absolutely stunning. Do you do you have a favourite foxglove? I'm always torn. I mean, I do love I love the wild one to to be honest. Yeah. And in the in the right light, when that pink really starts to go into almost a purpley mauve, you know, in the evening light in the woodland, 
Yeah. My complaint with foxes in the garden is unless they are in a large flock, they often look a bit lonely and out of place. Yeah. So I, I do think, you know, a good drift of them, you know, is, is essential. I grew one one year, which I loved for the vase actually, called Pam's Favourite, and it had mm. a purple, purple throat. Yeah. I didn't like it at all in the garden, um, but in, in the vase, there's a, a really tall single stem. In fact, I think I grew it at Bridgewater. Mm. And um, I picked the lot and had them in a vase in the middle of all the Bridgewater mugs. Yeah. And they looked spectacular. And it's, it is the kind of cut flower that does stop people in their tracks. But, of course, you get comments from people, they're poisonous, you can't pick them. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. unless you are planning to eat your foxgloves, they are perfectly fine for cutting, <laughs> for the record. Um, <laughs> and the bum- we must say the bumblebees, you know, what could be a more classic fairy tale flower for a bumblebee? You know, that all those... It is a tower of nectar, isn't it? As yeah. soon as the first one starts, the second one opens and it's, you know, for weeks they give bumblebees a, a feast and they sleep in the in the flowers, don't they, as well? Yeah, that's such a sweet sight where they've had s- such a massive glut out that they, you just, mm. you, you have a look and then there's, there's this great furry fat bumblebee having a yeah. nap. Yeah, I love Sutton's apricot too, don't you? That, that yes. sort of very, very soft, gentle pink Milky one. Milky peach. Yeah, it's mm. great, that one. And I love... I love just a big vase of that on the table in our kitchen, mixed with a few of the whites and just a few of the wild purple ones, mm. just so you get that kind of almost like a firework explosion, different to an allium because they're not like stars, they're like spires. Yeah. There was a very good phrase, I remember. I keep referring to Vita Sattva West, I don't know why. but um, she, she was a brilliant garden writer, but um, I loved her phrase where she said, in the rose garden at Sissinghurst, she had so many domes that what she realized was missing in her rose garden, like in a mosque, is you need the minarets at the sides of the domes. And so she consciously grew lupins because they flower at the same time as her roses, of course, and foxgloves. And actually, I know she grew quite a few eremiris, which I know you love too, but it's all about that vertical emphasis, which in a June border in any garden tends to be quite sort of undulating uh, mm. with things sort of quite rounded. But that's why having these spires is is just for design reasons is, is just such a perfect contrast, I think. Um, I remember Tom, I think Tom Brown, who used to work at Parham, he's, he did a foxglove trial, didn't he? Yeah. I yeah. saw it on his Instagram the other day. I don't know whether that's happening at his garden at West Dean, but it was lovely seeing a photo of of foxgloves properly on mass. You know, yeah. I think the more, and it's same same with wallflowers as well. I mean, there's there's photos of the cutting garden when you first started of them lining the main avenue. Yeah, and it really does. If you can get lots of biennials and then implant them with the bulbs, you know, you you are planting a Persian carpet. Yeah, and if you're growing from seed, you know, it's it's not an expensive thing to do. So, Mm. I mean, that's why, in fact, I got into biennials when I first moved here for two reasons. One is that I had quite a lot of space to fill in the garden and growing things from seed of substance, which is what somehow a biennial gives you a bit more substance than an annual. I mean, of course... Some annuals like Nicotiana sylvestris or whatever give you substance. But with, you know, there are really quite a few biennials that w- will give you good height, like a foxglove, mm. or good sort of scale quite quickly, like a sweet William. And, and so that was one reason. And the other reason was just as you say, they are that brilliant thing if you want a garden to give you a succession of color. Just as the tulips go over, the biennials, 
really come into their own. So all those things like sweet rocket, Hesperus matronalis, and the Iceland poppies, and as we've mentioned, the sweet williams and the foxgloves, etc., they then take the colour pattern right the way through until the roses sort of fully fully take over in mid to late June. So that's why for a garden that wants reliable colour from the beginning of the growing season in March till the end in November, I think biennials do form a, a really key part to that. Yeah, definitely. As, especially for, for pot toppers as well, actually, particularly for wallflowers, you really, they really are valuable, aren't they? They do give mm. actually some form to the garden in winter. You know, if you can get yeah. your foxgloves nice and beefy, you then have that lovely, you know, rosettes of leaves all through the garden and it just stops the garden looking fallow. Because when you have cleared your, your garden or your cutting patch, it can look a bit bleak for, for winter. But if you've got your biennials in, they will hold their own. And I remember when I worked at, at the Bridgewater factory in Stoke, I grew a lot of wallflowers there and it was really hard winter storms there. And I remember going out one day, I think it was after the famous storms we had a few years ago that had weird names named after people. What was it? Storm Benjamin. Anyway, <laughs> the whole bed of wallflowers literally looked like stewed spinach. And I thought, oh my God, I've, I've uh, you know, I should have fleeced them. Yeah. Anyway, as soon as the weather just went above, you know, one degree, they all came back to life. They're, they are an amazingly hardy group of plants. For yeah, they, they really are. And um, I mean, I, I have done an experiment here in Italy. We're on clay soil, but I've, done exact the same amount of seeds straight into the garden direct of uh, different wallflowers, different foxgloves, different sweet williams, hesperis, and Iceland poppies, and exactly the same undercover. And I'm afraid, really sadly, I have to say that we got five times as many plants in the end from undercover than we did outside. Mm. And the other thing I think it's worth bearing in mind with quite a lot of the biennials is that, for instance, hesperis is, of course, a brassica. And what I found with direct sowing them is that they just got completely knackered by the flea beetle, which of course uh-huh. is the thing that peppers rocket, etc. You know, salad rocket with all those tiny holes is that's flea beetle. And of course, wallflowers are in the brassica family too. So I found mm. that both the Hesperus and all our wallflowers, their leaves just turned to lace and they never quite recovered. They, they never really sort of took off quite in the same way. But I know you adore poppies, don't you? And and you love the Iceland poppies just as much as the somniferum poppies. Yeah, I do. I've never actually grown them, I'm ashamed to say. Um, Have you not? I, I admire them when I visit you at Perchill and I, I love seeing them at Chatsworth when they're grown in the, the greenhouses there. But they they kind of fall off the radar. And But I should I should try and grow them more because the nice thing is you can now buy them as single colours rather than a mix. Yeah. And yeah, the, the, there's, a, there's a lovely deep pink one, deep pink, and they're huge. You know, when you see them at Covent Garden Market wrapped in those little fleeces and, you know, they're, yes. they're almost like little dragons. And then you get them home and, you know, you have to you have to peel off that bud, don't you? And yeah. the, the most the, the most craziest thing. But, uh, yeah, one day I do hope to be able to grow them. But um, whether I grow them in a greenhouse or not, I think maybe greenhouse growing is, is as you said, better, more worthy. Well, yeah, I think definitely sowing them in a greenhouse. But, I mean, we plant them out here twice a year, the Iceland poppies. Mm. And as you say, we now grow them in the single colours. We've got a beautiful white, uh, Papava Nordicale. It's just called Champagne Bubbles White. And uh, it was just stunning all the way down the edge of a veg garden bed last year. And honestly, I mean, I picked 60 or 70 bunches from a row about 20 foot long. 
And mm -hmm. I always pick them in bud and bring them in and I sear the stem end in boiling water. You're often told that you're best to sear them in a flame rather than in boiling water. But again, right. I've tried both and I find them just the same. And I personally find it a bit easier to just plunge the bunch into just an inch of boiling water and then into cold. And then they will gradually unfurl. So even if they're in quite tight bud, they will then pop themselves out of that sort of calyx sitting around the flower. And they're like the most perfect tissue paper sort of Japanese flower. They, they are just utterly idyllic. I completely, I completely love them. So it's, de it's definitely um, a call to arms on the biennials, I'd say. Do you have to, just, just with the poppies, because I know with my wallflower seedlings, I have to really feed mine with a lot of seaweed feed, even when they're little, to keep them looking nice. Do the yes. Iceland poppies need a lot of feed, or are they like poppies and like to be, you know, not yeah, tended no, much? Yeah, no, they're all right. They tend to, mm. if you see them in the wild, they grow in quite sort of gritty soil. Yeah. And actually, they're, you know, like, oh, I always think of poppies at Dungeness, just in the gravel yes. in Derek Jarman's garden. And I know they aren't, they're a Schultz, it's the Californian poppy but they do tend to like disturbed ground, I think. Mm. Anyway, I, I, it's very much something at the top of my sewing list this week. I really want to try and get on with it. And I, I don't want us to forget there are some very natural looking ones too, which are the cow parsleys. That's actually a biennial. So oh, we, yeah. we grow lots of the Anthrisca sylvestris raven's wing, which is the dark, beautiful, sort of black lacy foliage plant. And then it goes on to have shorter, less big umbels than the wild cow parsley that you see in the lanes at the moment. But once you've got a few plants in your garden of that, like a lot of these biennials, it will then self-seed. And I've got a, a border against a hedge because, of course, they like dappled shade against mm. a hedge. And uh, I don't need to do any more. They just uh, repeat from one year to the next. And um, I love them with tulips, the foliage with tulips in the spring. And then I pick the flowers, you know, at this time of year and bring them in. People are wary of picking cow parsley because they drop their petals on the table and they will yes. do that. But if you sear them, it does stop them a little bit. But you do tend to come down to that sort of confetti of pollen mm. and petal mm. on the table in the morning, don't you? Quite romantic, really. Yeah, they are. Yeah, feather duster sorts it out. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> You're partial to a feather duster, Arthur. Well, no, but, you know, I don't know why people are so afraid of petals and pollen around the place. It annoys me. Yeah, yeah. No, petals and um, pollen are essential parts of the... Yeah, it's all part of the, the feeling. Yeah, and of, of, for our, our lovely pollinators, they need pollen. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah so... That's, um, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, so then um, in terms of the edibles, as I say, parsley and carrots are both biennial, but neither of them are you growing them for their flowers. Of course, in fact, the wild carrot, which is Dorcas dara, which is the beautiful umbellifer that you'll see down the lanes a bit later than cow parsley, more like um, June, July and August. But that's Dorcas dara. And then there's a new cut flower variety called Purple Kisses, which is a relation of the wild carrot. But it's been selected to have those darker, almost verging into crimson flowers. But anyway, <laughs> back, back, back to uh, carrots. So we've done so much trialing of carrots and how to grow them best here. And I've got really quite discouraged because I think there is almost nothing nicer from the vegetable garden than going out, picking a bunch of carrots, washing it under the tap and eating them just like that. 
And so I've really struggled with carrots on our heavy clay soil because, of course, they're happiest in almost pure sand. And if you see those wonderful stalls at Chelsea or at one of those horticultural shows or at the competition like the giant vegetable competition up in Morven, they actually grow them in grit down in drain pipes. Literally, they fill the whole thing and then put the carrot seedling and it just grows down and down and down oh. and down. Anyway, we don't have grit here, unfortunately. It's very heavy clay. But what I found is carrot tape is really brilliant. And just like you said about it being fiddly sewing foxgloves, with mm. carrots, they're so tiny that it's really difficult to get thin sewing. So then you have to go back and thin the seedlings of your carrots. And that is, in fact, the scent of that, the perfume of that, or the smell of that, whatever, is what draws in the carrot fly. They then lay their eggs and the maggots then munch down and munch away at the carrot root. And what I found is two things. One, doing the carrot tape so you don't need to thin. And two, either growing them weirdly and strangely, but actually I now grow quite a lot of my carrots in the greenhouse between my tomatoes and I just unroll a carrot tape and water it. And then within two months, I'm picking the most pristine and delicious carrots before actually you want to tread on that soil to pick your tomatoes. So it's in fact a really effective way of intercropping and it was a sort of chance discovery here, really, that we just still had some carrot tape that we were trialing here and in went the tomatoes. And it was this companion planting or no intercropping rather than companion planting that just worked incredibly well. And certainly we do that now. But if I was to grow them outside in the garden, I really do recommend that they need to be under some sort of cloche because otherwise the carrot fly, in my experience, particularly on heavy clay, just has a field day. And uh, it's just so disappointing having gone to all that bother of sowing and growing carrots that you then practically they're not edible really because they've just got so many holes through them. Does not growing carrots in containers make any difference? It does help. Yeah. Does it help? Yeah. Mm. I mean, you always read that carrot fly only flies within a metre of the ground. So if you can raise them up in raised beds or in a container, you're not going to get them. Well... Unfortunately, that isn't my experience, but I do think it does help protect them a bit, Mm. raising them up in a a container. So if you could forsake a dolly tub for carrots, maybe that would be worth it. Yeah, I think so. Mm. And then fill it with literally half grit to compost. Yeah, so that it's a really, really, really gritty mix. Good. Well, is there anything else you want to say about biennials, Arthur? Because otherwise I'm going to give our recipe of the week. Well, they're not biennial, but um, I do tend to sow them between now and August, and it's uh, kale that I then use as ah, pot toppers. Yeah, really good point. They, in a way, they are sort of biennial because they do, if you leave them, they will flower. Yeah. If, you know, if you're not eating them, they give you a lovely flower. So I sow kale red ball. Certainly by, by July, I'm sowing that, and that gives it just enough time to form a nice small plant. It won't get as big as it would do in the veg garden but then that's the perfect size to plant on top of my tulips. So yeah, while you're thinking about biennials, think about kale if you want decorative kale for your bulbs next spring. Yeah, that's such a good tip. And I'm just going to finish with giving the simplest of recipes, which I adore with carrots. And we actually serve here at the garden openings really often, which is I grate a few carrots and 
you know, literally three carrots goes an awfully long way if it's grated. <laughs> so if they've been organically grown, I don't peel them. If they've been chemically grown, I would peel them because, of course, there's a higher concentration of whatever chemicals has been put on them in the outer mm. skin layer. So, and then I grate them. And then all I, I literally dry fry, often just poppy seeds, or I might do poppy seeds, pumpkin seeds, and some sunflower seeds, maybe like a, a sort of level tablespoon of both the bigger seeds and a couple of teaspoons of poppy seeds. And I dry fry them in a frying pan and they will pop away um, so much so that sometimes I just toss them with a lid on the frying pan so that they don't scatter around the whole kitchen. And then I let them cool and then I chuck them over the grated carrot with uh, a lovely, really fruity extra virgin olive oil, some salt and the juice and zest of a lemon or a lime. And I just mix that all up together. And that is the most lovely sort of marinating carrot nutty salad. And it's really fresh. And yet it's quite filling because, of course, it's, it's sort of quite dense in a way. And with the seeds, it's incredibly nutritious. Thanks very much for listening to our podcast, Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. The next episode, Arthur and I are going to be on our own and we're actually going to talk about places that we would recommend visiting, whether it's Arthur's crazy zoological gardens with flamingos or gardens that I particularly love quite near here in the south of England. Anyway, we're going to give you our favourite places now we're allowed to get out and about and have a good time where we will be going. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.